Every successful revolution has a day that celebrates it. I don't know if you've thought about this. It's only the successful ones that get a day. You know, the unsuccessful ones, they don't, they don't get a day. But all the successful revolutions, they get a day, their own day. So Labor Day celebrates the success of the labor movement. May Day celebrates the success of the Russian Revolution. We don't celebrate that here, but it, it has been celebrated. Bastille Day celebrates the success of the French Revolution and my wedding anniversary. All France celebrates with me every, every year. And of course, July 4th celebrates our own American Revolution. And then there's today, Easter Sunday, a day that is not a national celebration, actually, but a, a day in which Christians are, from around the world celebrate and commemorate the most revolutionary event that has ever occurred, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is what Easter is all about. Now, of course, in the midst of a revolution, nobody knows whether it's going to be successful or not. Not when you're in the middle of it. Certainly, nobody knows which particular date is going to be the day to commemorate. I, I was struck by this fact um, a few years ago. You, you may have watched it as well. My wife and I were watching the, the PBS series on John Adams. And it, and it struck me how for both John and, and his wife, Abigail, uh, the, the American experiment was so precarious that it was by no means obvious that it was going to succeed even after the Revolutionary War had ended which just proves the point that I began with. Revolutions produce holidays, successful ones, not the other way around. Holidays do not produce revolutions, unless you're God. You know, when, when God engages in the revolution of setting his people free from slavery and sin, there's nothing uncertain about it. You know, he, he's not sitting around wondering whether or not it's going to all work out, whether or not it's going to be successful. And so, as is so typical for God, he goes ahead and plans the celebration first. Okay, so turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, that's found on page 104. 104, Exodus chapter 12. I'm just going to read the first two verses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, I'm going to stop there because it just goes on. We'll get back to it in a minute. It goes on to all sorts of details. Do you see what's going on there? This winter, We've been considering the, the original liberation theology of the Exodus narrative. And this morning, Easter Sunday, we come to the Old Testament Easter, the, the, the Exodus narrative. And with those opening words, 
this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. God makes it very clear that he is doing something new. He's actually using creation language right there. He is creating a new people and giving them a new start. Now, we're going to go ahead and read the rest of the chapter, but let me give you the summary sentence of, of chapter 12 up front. It'll help you follow along what we're going to do. If I could, if I could summarize what's going on in Exodus chapter 12, it would, it would be this. First, celebrate. That's it. That's the first point. First, just celebrate. That's, that's verses 1 all the way to 28. Celebrate. Because second... God has set you free just as he promised. God has set you free just as he promised. Verses 29 to 42. If, this is third, if you belong to the people of God. If you belong to the people of God. Verses 43 to 51. That's what this chapter is all about. Celebrate because God has set you free just as he promised. If you belong to the people of God. Now, if we were going to write the sentence, that's not the way we'd write it. We'd, we'd write it this way. God has finally set you free, so celebrate. That's not the way the chapter comes to us. It's celebrate because God has set you free. Now, as we think about the revolution of Passover and its connection to the revolution of Easter, I want you to think this morning about your own life. What would it mean for you to participate in God's revolution. So let's walk through this. First, celebrate. I'm going to read the whole thing now. Verses 1 to 28. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You're to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your coat, cloak tucked into your belt your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you were to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses, and whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is an alien or native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. We'll stop there for now. These verses describe what God is going to do to liberate Israel from Egypt, but they don't merely describe what God was going to do. They don't merely describe how Israel is going to be spared through the blood of the Passover lamb. They, They actually audaciously start a new calendar, start a, a new holiday to commemorate and celebrate an event that hasn't even happened yet. And it's not just the event that hasn't happened when the instructions are given. The freedom that event is going to produce, the freedom hasn't happened yet either. Frankly, as, as chapter 12 opens, it doesn't look like the freedom's coming. Uh, last week, we, we noticed how Pharaoh is just obstinate. He is opposed. He is settled. He is not letting Israel go. Not after nine plagues. Okay, God says another plague's coming. But after nine, and he still says no, why should anybody think that's reading along? Why should anybody think that a tenth is now finally going to do it? It's sort of the, the, the way this, this passage comes to us. It's, it's a bit like the founding father sitting down and, and planning the fireworks and, and the hot dogs and the parades before the Battle of Yorktown has been fought. It, it feels backwards. But friends, this is what God has always done. God speaks and things happen. God speaks and things happen. And and right here, what he's saying is he's declaring a new beginning. He is declaring a new creation for Israel. And that means it's certain. Because he said it, it is going to happen. Right down to the precise date it's going to happen. The 14th of Nisan. So the first thing that he does before he actually liberates them is he tells them how to celebrate the liberation. Now, there's more than party planning going on here. There is instruction, instruction for future Israelites and instruction for us. Instruction that prepares us for the far greater revolution that God was going to accomplish through Jesus Christ. So so the details are significant. I want to I point out just five. There are far more than that. 
And if you were here last Sunday evening as we celebrated a Passover Seder together, you would have heard about lots of other details. I just want to highlight five of the details here of this celebration that I think are very instructive and significant for us. And to begin with, notice that this lamb is to be a personal substitute for God's firstborn. This is not a hasty sacrifice. You know, they're told you need to go in advance and pick out this this lamb. You actually need to kind of bring it into your house and take care of it for a few days. This is not going to be an anonymous sacrifice. You're going to be up close and personal with this sacrifice, and then you're going to sacrifice it. And after you've sacrificed it, you're going to eat it. You're going to eat it roasted whole. It's not going to be disguised in a stew. It's not going to be hidden in some casserole. No, you're going to see the form of the lamb right there in front of you as you eat it. A personal substitution for the firstborn. Second, there's the placement of the blood. Did you notice that Moses gives some very specific instructions for where the blood of the, of the sacrificial lamb should be put? Not on the walls, not, not on the floor, but on the doorposts. Why, why the doorposts? Well, you know, if God is God and he is God, he's going to be able to see it wherever they put it. So it must not be for him so much, you know, so he knows where to find the blood. No, no, I think it's for the Israelites so that they understand what's going on with the blood. You see, in the ancient Near East, the threshold, the doorway, either to a home or, or, or even to a city, was the place of judgment. It's where the judges sat. It's, it's where judicial matters, even in the family, were carried out at the threshold of the doorway into the home. So wherever the blood was smeared, the point is being made, not just a sacrifice, but judgment has taken place for the family inside this house. Third, you you notice there's a lot of attention given to the fact that this is a family meal. They they are to get together as a family. If your family's not big enough, you get together with your neighbor. But this this is a family meal. But we don't want to think sentimental family meal. You know, like a, like a birthday meal or even like our own Thanksgiving. No, this is a covenantal family meal. The, the point here is that the, <clears throat> excuse me, the entire family of Abraham is God's firstborn son. God had already declared that earlier in the narrative. Moses had declared to Pharaoh, Israel, this is what God says, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. So now Israel gathers as covenant family units, making the point that no one is left out. The entire covenant family is included, is saved by this sacrifice. No, we'll find out later in, in the, in the narrative, no one is even to be outside the home. Everybody included, everybody inside as the covenant family of Abraham. Fourth, then, there's that long section about yeast. I mean, you think, you think this whole narrative is going to be about the, the Passover lamb, but then it turns out being as much about the yeast as it is about the lamb. All, all of this instruction about getting rid of the yeast, not only from their meal, but from their entire home, and not just for one meal, but, but for a whole week. 
Now, the removal of the yeast does point out the fact that, that they were going to leave in a hurry. And it, and it reminds the Israelites of that, that this, this, this all happened kind of overnight. There, there was not time to prepare. It happened in a hurry. But the removal of yeast for a whole week from the house, I think that is pointing to a much larger issue going on in this passage. And, and Paul really alerts us to it. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, is, is looking back really at this meal. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, get rid of the old yeast, referring to sin, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. Get, getting rid of the yeast, not just for a meal, but for, for an entire week, is, is alerting Israel to the fact that, that they're not just being rescued from slavery. They're being rescued to God. They're being set apart as a holy nation, the, the, the very people of God. Finally, a fifth detail to point out, and, and that is that the Passover meal is framed, as you see there, by, by a, a larger festival, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We, we see it mentioned a couple of times, but particularly there in verse 17. And, and this, this festival of unleavened bread, it's, it's marked by the first day and the last day of, of the week-long festival. And, and they are to be Sabbath days, days in which you do no work, days of rest. Now, a lot of us, when we even hear the word Sabbath, we think Puritans. And then when we think Puritans, we think boring. We think dour. We think, we think drudgery. But I, I don't think that's what's going on here. Well, A, that's not correct about the Puritans. It's not correct about Sabbath, but it's particularly not correct about what's going on in this passage. Because look at the one thing that they're allowed to do. They're allowed to prepare food. Now, in this, in this sense, I think it is a bit like Thanksgiving, right? I mean, none of us go to work on Thanksgiving Day. About all there is to do is to prepare a big feast and eat it and watch some football. Well, when all you can do is prepare food... Well, then that's what you do. And when you're with your family and all you can do is prepare food, you sit around the table and you have a celebration. You have a feast. I mean, this is what's going on here in, in this, this day of celebration. These, these, are, these are feast days. And yet they are feast days, a celebration in the midst of judgment. Because that is what's going on. What's the point of all these details? Well, clearly a celebration that is more than a celebration. A celebration that is meant to instruct us. A celebration that is a reminder of what God has done for Israel. It therefore becomes really an, an identity marker. For, for the generations to come, they are to celebrate not just this meal, but this entire week. So that people who weren't even there will know who they are. So, so that the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren will understand what it means to be a part of Israel. The covenant people of God, spared from judgment through the shed blood of a personal substitute in order to be set apart as a holy nation for God. That's who they are. And that's what this celebration is all about. Marking them out, explaining to them their identity. Now, you all know that, that actually Passover just happened just a few days ago. 
Uh, we're, we're, we're in the midst of the Feast of Unleavened Bread right now. Jews still celebrate all of this to this very day, thousands of years later. But what in the world does any of it have to do with us who are not Jews? Everything. It has everything to do with us. Because the details of this meal and, and the exodus that followed, it turns out, were just the dress rehearsal for the revolution the ultimate revolution that God had planned. I read, I read earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that, that same passage, a little bit later, Paul says something absolutely extraordinary. Speaking, think about the context now, speaking to a group of Gentile Christians in a Greek city. You just can't get more non-Jewish than that. This is what he says. Get rid of the old yeast that ye may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Friends, the truth of the matter is Jesus Christ is the true Passover lamb. And he is the true Passover lamb because Jesus Christ is the true firstborn son. This is what is so amazing about the gospel. All of us stand before God as if we're right there in Egypt. We all stand before God under his judgment for our sin. We deserve to die for our sins. Your sins are different than my sins. My sins are different than yours. But they're all worthy of God's judgment. And it kind of doesn't matter who you are. And yet the amazing thing is that Jesus Christ, the son of God, came and said, as the son, as the perfect son, as the son who does not deserve to die, I will put myself forward as the lamb, the perfect lamb of God. And that's what Jesus did. He came and he lived a life without blemish. Without any imperfection. And then he willingly offered himself as the son who is at the same time the sacrificial lamb. So that on the cross, when he shed his blood, it was as if the blood was being smeared on the place of judgment. So that whoever shelters under that cross whoever turns from their sin and puts their faith in Christ and says, I'm going to trust his blood to cover over me, to, to protect me. Oh, he can be confident that he will be spared. Whoever does this, God, God sees the blood, not of a lamb, but of his own son. And he's satisfied. He accepts the sacrifice. He spares us the judgment that we deserve. He sets us apart then as his people. Jesus himself actually made this very point. He explained to us that this is what he was going to do on the very night that he was betrayed to his death. He was eating the Passover meal with his disciples. And and at the end of that meal, he took one of the cups of the Passover meal. And he took some of the unleavened bread of that Passover meal. And he said, this is referring to the bread. This is my body 
given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. That's what was going on on the cross. And to prove that God accepted the sacrifice. That the proof that his death truly is effective to spare people from the judgment of God. Three days later, he got up from the dead. He walked out of the tomb, never to die again. Friends, this is Easter. This is what Easter is all about. That the son became the Passover lamb. And that it was effective for all who put their faith in him. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I want to encourage you to look at Jesus. Consider who he is. Consider what he did. You may feel like you've got no part in Jesus. Like you've got nothing to do with Jesus. Maybe you didn't grow up a Christian. Maybe you didn't grow up a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Maybe, maybe religion has really not been a part of your life at all. And so Jesus is just for religious people. Friends, that's not true. Jesus is for sinners. Jesus is for people who desperately need to be spared the judgment of God. That is who he is. That is what he has done. If you put your faith in him today. Believer. Let me just encourage you briefly. You have been spared. You have been spared. Christ's blood is effective. If you have put your faith in him already, you have nothing to fear. Just as the Lord would not allow the destroyer to enter into the homes of those who had the blood smeared on the doorpost, so the Lord will not allow death to touch you on the last day. Be confident in that, believer. Now, now as Christians, we want to understand that, that just like just like Israel, our identity is very much defined by our worship. Our public worship, what we're doing right here, right now, matters. It reminds us who we are. It tells the world, not just who we are, but whose we are, who we belong to. And of course, that means that the details of our public worship matter just the same way that the details of Israel's worship matter. The the, the elements of our worship, what we do here on Sunday morning, are frankly not designed primarily to entertain us. They are designed primarily to remind us, to rehearse with us the great truths of the salvation that God has accomplished for us. It, It matters who we celebrate with. We are to be the the celebrating community of the redeemed. We're not a club of friends. We're a spiritual family. I, I think it matters when we worship. God gave Israel a specific annual date, the 14th day of the first month, the month of Nisan. What he's given us is a weekly day, Sunday. The day Jesus got up from the dead. And it reminds us of, of, well, he he gave us a meal, just like he gave uh, the Israelites the Passover meal. uh, The the Lord gave us the Lord's Supper. All all of this tells us that that worship matters. It it reminds us of what God did. It it reminds us of who we are. It, It begins to shape us 
week after week, it begins to shape us as God's people. And of course, it points us forward. It's not just about today, but it points us forward to what God will finally and fully do on the last day. So friends, don't think that worship is just a matter of personal taste. It is not. Don't think that that worship is an optional add-on to your life when otherwise you're not too busy and the kids don't have sports games and there's not, you know, something else fun to do. It's not. It's commanded. It's a command celebration. We should prioritize it. We, we should prepare for it. I mean, if one of you were going to throw, you know, a, a 50th birthday party for your spouse or your friend, you would give it some advanced thought. You would prepare for the party. You would make it a priority because 50 is a big deal. I'm not saying that the other days aren't a big deal, but, you know, 50 is a big deal. That one's still out in front of me. So you're going to prioritize it. You're going to plan for it. Because it matters. Christian, the same should be true for us. Every single week, we want to prioritize the celebration of Jesus getting up from the dead and therefore us being a part of his new life. We want to prioritize it. We want to prepare for it. We want to plan for it. But most of all, we want to participate in it. We do not want to miss that celebration. Because our weekly celebration is is announcing in advance that God is making us new. All right, so celebrate. Celebrate because second, God has set us free just as he promised. God has set us free just as he promised. Look at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country for otherwise they said we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders and kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. You know, when we finally get to the, to the last plague, the death of the firstborn, Moses is strikingly circumspect. In its actual description, it's, it's the shortest of all the plagues. No gory details, 
no gloating, no crowing triumphalism. Simply the heavy, heavy weight of judgment. And the complete and unconditional capitulation of Pharaoh. He he even asks for a blessing there, which I think really is a, a confession of sin. Friends, the claims of justice cannot be denied. And the weight judgment cannot be avoided. This was but a partial judgment. Everybody in that country deserved death. And only the firstborn died. But there was not a house without someone dead. In every house. Egyptian and Jewish. In every house, there was a death, either the firstborn or the Passover lamb. And friends, so it remains. No one can stand before the judge of all the earth. No one. We will either face it ourselves or trust in Christ to face it for us. And those are really the only two options. But the point of this narrative isn't mainly Egypt's judgment. The point of this narrative is Israel's rescue. This is the get out of Egypt story. It's not the put Egypt down story so much. Really, by the time we get to this, it is all about getting out. And so Moses hurries on after those first few verses. He hurries on to focus on the departure The exodus, he he notes very quickly several things about it. They leave quickly. This is no drawn out negotiated fare like 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 we've seen with the first nine plagues. No, they're they're leaving with their kneading troughs on their shoulders. There is no time to make bread. They leave not only quickly, they leave well provided for laden with silver and with gold and with clothing for the journey. And notice they leave the place of their bondage completely from from Ramses, the the slave city that that they built as slaves, that they, they leave it and they go to Sukkoth with their flocks and with a huge crowd of followers coming along with them. Most importantly, though, Moses notes they leave as God promised they would. So they leave quickly. They leave well provided for. They leave completely. They leave as promised. 430 years to the day, Moses says. That's a clear reference back to the promise that God had made to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, God had said to Abraham while he was still in Palestine, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Moses says that God kept vigil that night. He did not slumber. He he did not rest. He kept watch to see for certain that his promise would be fulfilled and that Israel would be freed. Friends, you see, the the point isn't finally the judgment of Passover. The point is, is the exodus. Israel was not spared the judgment of the Passover just to be left in Egypt under better circumstances. No, they were spared the judgment there in Egypt in order 
to be set free. To be set free to serve God rather than Pharaoh. Throughout the, the plague narrative, Moses had gone to Pharaoh and he had said to him over and over and over again, this is what the Lord says, let my people go that they might worship me. In fact, that word worship could very easily be translated serve. God's plan all along was to set Israel free from serving Pharaoh, a cruel taskmaster. And instead to set them free in order to serve him, their loving father. And so it is with us. This is the promise of God in the gospel. Through the cross of Christ, we have been spared the judgment of God. But not then just to be left to our own devices. No, no, we've been spared in order to be set free. Set free from the enslaving power of sin and Satan. Set free in order to serve God instead. Now, how does that happen? Well, it happens when we put our faith in Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, we are justified. That means that we are set free from sin's condemnation. The penalty is paid. The debt is cleared. We are free of condemnation. But that's not all. When we put our faith in Christ, God begins to move us. He begins to move us from the the place of our slavery. He actually changes our condition, our, our nature. The Bible calls this sanctification. As we progressively move away from our old life of sin, move away from that old life of sin into a new life of the spirit. But even that's not all. God promises that the day will come when we are glorified. When we are set free fully and finally from this body of death. God's salvation sets us free. It sets us free from sin's condemnation today, now. It sets us free from sin's power increasingly. And it sets us free from sin's judgment forever. Christian, consider how richly God has provided for you in all of this. Not with silver and gold and clothing. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, how he has made us rich in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about what you have been given, how rich you have been made. You have been given God's word to make you wise for salvation. He's given you his spirit so that you will know that you indeed have been adopted as a son or a daughter of God. He's given you Christ's righteousness so that you can be clothed And not naked and ashamed. He's given us the body and the blood of Christ. That we might never grow grow hungry for grace. He's, He's given us the Lord's intercession. That we might never fall away. He's He's given us spiritual gifts. Not that we can spend them on ourselves. But that that we can then spend them freely on others. So that we can be rich towards God. He's given us the church. That we might not be orphans. But part of a family. This is just a small taste of what you've been given. Now, I understand, just like the Israelites are leaving homes that they've lived in for four centuries. Christian, when you left your sin for Christ, you left much. You left what was deeply comfortable. You left what was deeply familiar. You left your pleasures. Now, they were selfish pleasures. And they were never satisfied but they were pleasures. You, you, you left 
the familiar home of your old life. They were slave quarters, to be sure. But you knew them well. They felt familiar. You left all the promises that sin makes you. Every single one of those promises is broken. But they are appealing promises. And we don't want to pretend here. To leave Egypt, to leave our sin, to go with Christ is to leave much. But see how richly God has paid you back. He will not be your debtor. Not even to your sin. Now, if you're here this morning and and you're thinking about becoming a Christian. Maybe you're not sure how to become a Christian. I think I think this passage is instructive. Faith here isn't a feeling. It's not like a mystical experience. All of a sudden, like we get warm inside or something. No, faith is get up and go. That's what faith is. Faith is getting up and leaving Egypt, leaving your old life of sin, following Christ, trusting in God to lead you to freedom. You may not quite know where it's going yet. They didn't. You might not either. But you know that's the way to life. And that's the way I'm going to head. I'm going to trust him and I'm going to follow him. And that means leaving the old way behind. The old way of thinking, the old way of living. Friends, that's what faith is. Get up and go. Finally then, celebrate. Because God has set you free, just as he promised. If you belong to his people. If you belong to his people. Look at verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave you've bought may eat of it after you've circumcised them, but a temporary resident and a hired worker may not eat of it. It must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native born and to the alien living among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. All of a sudden, with verse 43, we're, we're, we're back into the, the details of the celebration. We're back into kind of the, the, the liturgy and, and, and the rules pertaining to the Passover meal. Only now, the focus isn't so much on the meal as on who can participate in the meal. And what these verses make very clear is that only those who belong to the covenant community of Abraham may participate. Everyone else is excluded. It doesn't matter how well you know them. It doesn't matter how nice they are. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't matter how much they want to participate in the meal. If they are not a part of the covenant community of Abraham, they are excluded. No exceptions. But when you look closer at these verses, it's clear that the intent of these rules isn't so much exclusion, but inclusion. This is to be a family celebration. But the surprising thing comes out there in in these verses. You you don't actually have to have been born a Jew 
to be part of the family. You don't have to have been born an Israelite. Or a slave can be included. An economic immigrant, a foreigner, and an alien can be included if they are first willing to be circumcised. Which God introduced back in Genesis 17 is the sign that marks out the covenant family. What does that mean? Basically, it means they've got to be willing to give up their status as outsider and alien. And instead be willing to come into the covenant family of God. To be in the covenant is to literally just come into relationship with God. It's to take his name upon you. It's to acknowledge God's lordship over you. It is to submit to God's love in your life. Now that Christ has come, the true Passover sacrifice, as we've already seen, we don't do this by being circumcised. No, we do it by confessing our faith in Christ through baptism upon our profession of faith. It is when we're baptized that we take the name of Christ on us, that we take the lordship of Christ on us publicly. You see, Jesus is the true family of Abraham. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. Jesus is the true Israel. And therefore, to be in him, to be included in him through faith, as we make that public in baptism, that is to be brought into the family. It's not just a private thing. It's not just a me and Jesus thing, as these verses make clear. It is corporate. That's the whole point of insisting that the the community needs to celebrate together. That it's eaten inside one house. Reflecting on this chapter, once again, Paul, writing to these Greek Christians, the Corinthians, are going to rebuke the Corinthian church for treating the Lord's Supper as if it were just a private meal. Everyone eating it whenever and however they saw fit, not waiting to eat it together as a family. You see, to be a part of God's rescue, to be a part of God's revolution, is to be brought into a new family, the church. That's true if you're native-born, if, if you're you know, one, one of the kids maybe who's grown up their whole lives in the church. That's true if you feel like a total outsider, an alien, who's never really been a part of a church. The same applies to all. No one is excluded merely because of ethnicity or family relationships, but no one is included on that basis either. No, we're included because we've submitted to the covenant of love. God's covenant in Jesus Christ held out to us in the gospel. So I just want to ask you to conclude. Why are you here today? It's a holiday. I get that. It's an important one. I get that. But but why are you here? We are really glad that you are. Whether this is your hundredth time here or your first time here. But what brought you? Is it because twice a year you go to church? Is it is it to, to please a friend or, or a family member? The thing about holidays, even Easter, is that unless you benefit from what the holiday celebrates, they're really nothing more than a day off work. And since most of you don't work on Sunday, that makes Easter a pretty lousy holiday because it doesn't even give you what the rest of the holidays give you. 
I, I learned this living in England. My family lived in England for about four years. And that, that very first summer that we were there, you know, 4th of July came around. And no one was celebrating. Now, now we were good Americans, right? So we invited all our friends over. We, we, we had a barbecue in the backyard. And, you know, it just wasn't the same. I mean, everybody had to do it after work, of course, because everybody works on July 4th in Britain. And uh, for our British friends, it was just a chance to eat hot dogs in our backyard. It's kind of a novelty. It just wasn't the same. It wasn't very special. Because the people celebrating it really didn't benefit from it. It wasn't their revolution. Four years later, we moved back to the U.S. We're living in Washington, D.C. Oh, Fourth of July came around, and it was special. It was powerful. Because it was my revolution. I'm, I'm an American. I benefited from it, and that celebration meant something to me. Perhaps you've been coming to Easter services for years but they're really not much different than my British friends sitting in my backyard eating hot dogs. Interesting, curious, but it wasn't their revolution. Friends, Jesus got up from the dead. Jesus Christ got up from the dead, which means that a revolution has happened. Which means actually that God's revolution is the only one that matters. And so the question for all of us today, is it my revolution too? Let's pray. Father, that you would plan to give your son for sinners like us. Jesus, that you would willingly offer yourself for sinners like us. This is a love that we cannot comprehend and that we certainly don't deserve. We pray that you give us eyes to see what a revolutionary love you have displayed towards us in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would cause us to to get up and go, that you would cause us to demonstrate that we are indeed beneficiaries, participants in this most amazing revolution from sin and death. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.